the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part by Zero Res. First of all, I'd like to say thank you for your support of India Partners yesterday as we helped to raise funds to rescue children from some very difficult circumstances. And that appeal came on a day when much of our attention was focused on events that took place in our own country, in Florida, where the lives of 17, mostly children, some adults were lost when a gunman who had legally purchased an AR-15 walked into a Florida high school he had once been enrolled in and expelled from a shot and killed 17, wounded uh, about 12 others. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. In fact, we're going to talk with Paul and Khadija Jacobs. Now, Paul Jacobs, you might uh, recognize the name. He is with Food for the Poor, and he's here every year with their campaign. And uh, his daughter, uh, uh, Zafina, was in the classroom, was at the school, at the scene at the time of the shooting in Florida. She knew the gunman. She lost one of her dear friends in that melee. And Uh, She and her mother were uh, interviewed on CNN uh, that very day. Uh, Of course, the school is closed for the remainder of this week. Monday is President's Day, so there's a period of time uh, for these kids to try to adjust to the horrific scenes that many of them witnessed on this large and sprawling campus. We're going to give uh, Paul and Khadija Jacobs an opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about what it was like for them getting the call from their daughter, who fortunately, like lots of other kids, had cell phones and were able to communicate with their parents almost right away. Uh, Of course, some were not as fortunate as we have seen uh, the details of this uh, horrific event unfold. We'll talk with them uh, later in, uh, well, in our next segment. We're also going to talk with Catherine Clark. She's the author of Where I End, A Story of Tragedy, Truth, and Rebellious Hope. She was involved in a really a freak accident that left her paralyzed and a prognosis that she would very likely be unable to walk again. And while uh, she experienced a miracle, the suffering and pain that accompanied her recovery is part of what she has written about in our conversation. She'll join us later uh, this hour. Then we'll try to cover some of the day's news that includes certainly the events as they're unfolding in Florida as we're learning more about the gunman whose name we are not going to uh, to mention. We'll rather uh, emphasize those who were the victims, including one coach who shielded several of the uh, young students at the school who were targets of the gunman. He took several hits. Those girls survived. Uh, those are the names we want to remember and not the individual who was responsible for the shooting, who uh, had uh, indicated on social media that he wanted to be distinguished as a professional school shooter. Well, I have a feeling that uh, what happens from this point forward is going to be very different than what he imagined. And uh, I'm hearing from prosecutors that they are considering and are, will very likely put um, the death penalty on the table in that case. Anyway, we'll talk with uh, Paul and Kajija Jacobs about that. We'll talk with Catherine Clark about her book, Where I End, A Story of Tragedy, Truth, and Rebellious Hope, and uh, some of the uh, rest of the day's news throughout the remainder of uh, 
of the program. Well, the gunman accused of killing 17 people at the Florida High School Wednesday had previously attended that school. He was uh, known as uh, something of an outsider. He had been expelled from the school. He arrived at Broward County Jail early this morning after federal and local investigators questioned him for several hours. He was charged with 17 counts of premeditated murder in the shooting at at um, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. He was taken into custody without incident on Wednesday uh, by Coconut Creek Police in the Coral Springs area, uh, just a few miles from the high school. He had, after shooting what had been his former classmates, had simply um, left his gun and other paraphernalia, a backpack, uh, and attempted to blend in with other students running out of the school. He was successful at doing that. He went to a local Walmart. He bought a drink. Uh, milled around uh, a little while um, and uh, at uh, a little bit of a distance and was caught um, just a couple of miles from the school uh, shortly after. One 16-year-old, a former classmate, told the uh, Miami Herald that um, uh, all he would talk about referring to the gunmen were, was guns, knives, and hunting. I, can, I can't say I'm shocked from past experience. He seemed like the kind of kid who would do something like this. And this was repeated by many of the uh, the kids at the school, as well as a few adults, police said the gunman, who was identified as the only possible gunman, had been taken into uh, taken rather to the hospital for a period of time after his arrest because he exhibited labored breathing. I can imagine with all that happened, uh, that would be the uh, the, the least of um, his response to having been uh, caught. About 15 people were taken to the hospital. At least five people remain hospitalized. Two had been in critical condition as recently as earlier today. Uh, both of them have been downgraded uh, and in fair condition with one still being hospitalized with serious condition. The motive behind the massacre wasn't immediately clear. And typically in these kinds of events, the shooter doesn't survive uh, to fill in those blanks. In this case, it's possible, although it's not a sure thing, it's possible that we'll learn more about what motivated him to engage in this activity. The FBI is focused on uh, the successful prosecution of this killer, we're being told. Uh, his first court appearance was earlier today, 2 p.m. local time in Florida. Well, students at the high school in uh, Parkland reportedly thought they were having another fire drill when they heard shots fired. They had had a fire drill earlier in the day. It was about 15 minutes before uh, school was to end. And so they thought when the alarm went off a second time, uh, many of them did, but not all, that this was just routine. The shooter uh, was equipped with a gas mask, uh, smoke grenades, multiple magazines of ammunition. He came on the campus during school dismissal, fired his uh, AR-15 rifle at his uh, uh, former classmates and faculty, barricaded themselves in classrooms, according to officials. Uh, And that is, of course, responsible for the fact that there weren't more people lost in the the melee. Other people ran into the streets as they um, heard pop, pop, pop in the background. Uh, He joined those who ran into the streets uh, once he had finished uh, doing what he had done, and he knew law enforcement was approaching the the campus. According to one law enforcement official, there was an armed school resource deputy on campus at the time of the shooting, but never encountered crews. And the campus is uh, rather sprawling. There are a number of buildings and a number of floors per building, making it very difficult to police or patrol the entire campus. The fire alarm went off for the school um, a second time in the day at about 2.30 p.m. Students were calmly filing out of the school when he suddenly heard uh, when uh, observers suddenly heard several gunshots. The shooter later concealed himself in that crowd of students, teachers uh, and teachers rather, running out of the high school. Authorities said he was soon taken into custody without a fight. And that was uh, also 
uh, broadcast. Details about uh, his troubled past began to emerge, and I'm certainly not going to speculate or uh, attempt or pretend that I have any explanation as to what happened, but we do know that some details about his past have uh, emerged, and that began hours after the uh, the massacre. His adoptive mother um, died of pneumonia on November the 1st. Family and friends say that uh, his adoptive father had also died of a heart attack some years earlier and that he and his uh, younger brother were devastated by the loss. Uh, he had been expelled from the high school um, the previous year. That was in 2017. He was also described as having an obsessive interest in weapons. One teacher said that he was uh, banned from entering the campus with a backpack which is precisely what he did. An Instagram page apparently belonging to uh, the shooter showed pictures of guns and knives, and some of his uh, social media posts were very disturbing. In fact, he described himself as a future wannabe a school massacre uh, professional. Uh, an Instagram page apparently belonging to him. President Trump tweeted on, well, earlier today about the alleged gunman, saying that so many signs that the Florida shooter was mentally disturbed, even expelled from school, uh, for bad uh, or erratic behavior, neighbors and classmates knew he was a big problem, must always report such instances to authorities again and again. Well, of course, that would not have made a difference in this case. Uh, someone acting in a peculiar way doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to engage in uh, that kind of violent behavior. Up next, we'll talk with Paul and Khadija Jacobs. Their daughter was a witness to the events as she was on campus at the time of the shooting. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, all of us have been following what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School yesterday. It was Valentine's Day and no one in that school in Florida expected the tragedy that was unfolding early that morning. 17 we know were killed at the high school shooting. More than a dozen others have been injured. And it's the nightmare of every parent, of every teacher, administrator, every community that this kind of violence would erode in a school setting. Well, Paul Jacobs is a familiar name to many of you. He is with Food for the Poor and has been here on this program many times. We learned earlier today that Paul Jacobs' daughter uh, was there at the school at the time of the shooting, and she and her uh, her mother, in fact, were interviewed on CNN just last night. Uh, they're joining us now to talk about uh, what happened and what, uh, what happens next. Uh, Paul and Khadija, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Georgine. It is great to be back with you, and certainly not under these circumstances, but glad to be back. Absolutely. I was just going to say, I wish we were talking about something else, but I appreciate your willingness to, to tell us uh, what happened with your daughter yesterday at the school. Now, I know, Khadija, you and your daughter were interviewed uh, yesterday. You were on the phone with her as events unfolded there. Kind of walk us through the morning. Well, I mean, from the morning time, everything was just as regular. Um, Mom, I'll be at school, no problem. She took the bus. Everything was great. Next thing you know, I receive a text message from my daughter stating, at this moment, there's an active shooter. My first reaction was, let me just put on the TV. Let me make sure that this is real. Mm -hmm. And then that's when I saw it all over the news. From there, she just continually texts me. Um, what occurred for her is that around 2.35, as they le- were beginning to leave the classrooms, because classes end by 2.40, but some students leave early, and um, they heard the fire alarm. And her attitude was, wait a minute, we already did the fire alarm early this morning. What is this? 
So they started to tell the kids to evacuate. But as um, I'm sure the teachers and administrators realized, it wasn't just a evacuation. The teacher, a teacher stopped my daughter and, and other classmates and told them, go into the room now. This is a lockdown, a shutdown. So she immediately was able, you know, some classrooms were already closed. Once those doors are closed, they don't get open. She was able to get some of her friends and they got into um, a classroom and they were able to lock. And um, before going there, she's like, mom, you know, we heard four to five pop. So from mm-hmm. there, they managed to hear the gunshots coming from the building across. So she for two, she was in the classroom from 2.35. They didn't release her until about 5 o'clock. In the meantime, she continually texted me, I'm okay. She also was texting Paul, who was um, out of state working. So, But still, we, we were like in constant communication. With her knowing that I just lost my mother last week, her grandmother, um, which was definitely difficult for both of us, she continually stayed calm. But the biggest thing that helped was she remained calm to the point where she took her friends into the corner. She was praying with them. And she she did everything she could just to keep everyone in a calm state until they apprehended the shooter not too far from the school. Mm. my understanding is this is a, a rather large, sprawling campus, which might account for the, the two-hour delay before she was liberated from the room. Uh, during that, that period of time, was it clear where the, the active shooter was involved, or was it unclear on what portion of the, the campus the concerns uh, were pinpointed? He was actually in what's called the freshman building, which is a separate building. But it's not just freshmen that are in those buildings. Mm-hmm. You have AP students. You have all variety of students in that building. They just happen to call it the um, the the freshman building. So my understanding was he was on the second floor when he got in. He immediately pulled the fire drill. So that brought students out. A lot of the students did, you know, just thought, oh, okay. And even when students heard the popping noise, they didn't think it was a gun because there was balloons everywhere. So they're thinking balloons are popping until they realize, no, this is, this is real, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, Paul, you were um, uh, working for Food for the Poor. You're out of town. When you first got the call explaining that your daughter is in a dangerous situation, what were your first thoughts? And then what did you do? Well, you know, I'm driving to a radio station in Detroit. Um, I'm an hour away from uh, getting on the air and doing what I what I always do. Um, And I'm literally talking in the conversation with my colleague, Todd. And of course, your phone goes, bing, a text message comes in. It's the 21st century. What do we do? Our eyes shift away from our conversation to our phone. And at that moment, when I see my daughter texting me, there's an active shooter on campus, but I'm fine. It was as if everything, including that conversation in the car next to me, was a mile away. Mm. And immediately, as I text her back and she responded, she's okay, I begin to pray. I mean, I, I mean, we, we were five minutes from the radio station in Detroit, and then in almost that entire time, I'm warring and battling, interceding for my daughter, interceding and praying for the campus, praying that the angel of God would literally come down and begin to apprehend this, this individual, whoever or whoever it was. 
And um, it was that moment that where, you know, faith is elevated and your focus can become clear and you don't become in a hysterical parent, which, uh, you know, and I'm not discrediting any parent for their response or their emotional, how they were emotionally. But that's where I was to keep my focus being so far away. Mm. You have a father's heart. So immediately you began to intercede for your daughter, probably knowing little of the fact that your daughter is interceding for her classmates huddled in a corner um, at that school. Now, Nicholas Cruz apparently was a former student. Do you know if your daughter had known anything about him, had ever had contact with him, or uh, was uh, surprised by this this whole event involving this particular student? Unfortunately, and this is the the uh, the backstory of all of these cases. We have uh, three daughters. This is our youngest of three that gra- uh, that is graduating this year. My previous two girls uh, graduated um, uh, from the same school, Stoneman Douglas High School. And all three of them knew this young man, all knew of him, not knew him personally, but knew of him, uh, knew that his character, knew that he was an, a very isolated individual. And our youngest daughter um, in her junior year last year said that even some of the outcast students that, you know, she's a very open and friendly girl. My daughter is, is just, she's always welcoming. She's always trying to help others who, who kind of felt maligned and pushed mm-hmm. aside and bring them into her circle because she's just like that. And even those kids would not associate with this young man, unfortunately. And this is the, this is what's coming out after the fact. Yeah. All the violence and violent tendencies was something that was unbeknownst to them, but they knew who he was. Mm. Yeah, and we're learning more about uh, Nicholas Cruz, uh, who had been expelled from the school earlier, um, but has now been away from the school for a period of time. Now, most of our listeners uh, don't even want to imagine a similar situation involving their children. And let me ask you, Khadija, as you are at some distance from your daughter, you have the comfort of at least getting some details. Mom, I'm okay, but it's an active shooting situation, so anything could happen. As a woman of faith, how did you approach this? And as you look back, how do you approach what has already now happened? I I can honestly tell you that I just have my faith in God is just bigger than any situation. And I never felt with my daughter contacting me as well, that only confirmed that God was there. You know, it only confirmed to me he's watching over those that was in the classroom. He was watching over the situation. I just prayed. And then my goal, my ultimate goal was let me make sure other people know. And that's why I posted on social media. And as the news kept bringing more information, I'm posting it to make sure others know. And, and, and for me, throughout this whole situation, my heart is just for the 17 that, that I won't say, I kept saying lost their loved ones. They didn't lose their loved ones. Their loved ones was taken away. You know, they, they, their loved ones was taken away. And my goal now is just to reach out to those families. So far, my daughter discovered her good friend was unfortunately one of those. And I've already reached out to that family. And, and it's like, after all the cameras are gone and everything, they're still going to need yes. people. So my my heart's desire is that we all reach out and, and we love on these families and help them through this because you just, they sent their kids to school. That's what they did. Yeah. They didn't expect this. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I know many of us uh, from around the country are also uh, praying. School out today, what's the plan for the students who were a part of this uh, horrific event? 
Uh, Broward County Schools, uh, which we're a part of, that's our county um, schools, uh, you know, are back, you know, they're back in session. But our school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, is closed until further notice. Um, there's it's still an active investigation. Um, the community is a very it's a big but very small community, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's amazing. I, I my cousin is a principal to the to in a middle school. That's a feeder school. He went to high school with Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's principal. Um, so this is a very connected, very personal situation for all of us. And so we're literally hanging up with you in a few moments uh, so that we can go and attend to a vigil. Um, But this is, as I share with my family, this is where the work begins. Mm -hmm. The ministry of Jesus, the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of healing takes place right now. I'm going there not to cry, but I'm going there to hold, to hug, and to begin the healing process for many who may or may not know who Christ is. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly keep the two of you in prayer and and the uh, community there as they're grieving the loss of some 17 students and uh, a couple of adults, I understand as well, and those who are still uh, recovering from their injuries as a result of this event. Thank you, Paul and Khadija. We appreciate so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. God Georgine, bless you both. Thank you very much. God bless you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Kate Clark was a wife, an active mother of two. In 2009, she lived in Michigan when a tragic playground accident left her paralyzed from the neck down. Well, after surgery for her injured spine, she was told that she would likely never walk again. Facing the possibility of a life without being able to hug her children, to walk independently or hold her husband's hand, she prayed a prayer of rebellious hope and asked God for a miracle. Her book, Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope, she tells her story of miraculous recovery. Working with doctors and nurses at a rehabilitation clinic. She began improving in the months after her injury, eventually walking on her own. Her recovery was stunning, yet she wrestled with deep grief. Given a miracle, she still feels pain from her injury. How can she be grateful for her recovery while still grieving for the abilities she's lost? And why did she recover when patients she met with similar injuries did not? What good will come out of this tragic event? Well, her story reminds us that God is with us and faithful even in difficult circumstances. And while she experienced something miraculous, she's also endured suffering. She still lives in a broken world, experiencing pain from her injuries and limitations, even in her healing. Where I End reminds us all that God can bring unexpected good out of our suffering and that to have faith is to have rebellious hope. Catherine Elizabeth Clark is a wife to a gifted theologian and a mom of two bright kids all of whom bring merriment and humor to her days. She's a native of Detroit. She has uh, had the privilege of living in several great cities, including Toronto, Grand Rapids, and Chicago. With a background in psychology, she spent much of her last 20 years working and writing for a nationwide Christian radio and counseling ministry. The Clarks live in Wheaton, Illinois, and she joins us today to talk about her book, simply titled Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Can you tell us the story of your accident? Sure, I would love to. Um, So it was a pretty typical day uh, as they start out, and I was at my son's school, and it was such a lovely day that we decided to stay for recess. My daughter was four years old, and she was with me on this day. And my son kind of disappeared in a field far beyond uh, the school, 
my daughter was uh, swinging on the playground, and I kind of had just suggested a game of tag to the kids who were hanging on me. And, you know, before I knew it, we were just racing uh, about the playground, just having a wonderful time. I'm laughing. Um, I'm beating these kids at their own little game. There's several of them is um, chasing me because, as you probably um, have witnessed before whenever an adult jumps into a game, pretty much all the kids are <laughs> on that adult. So I have this growing kite string of kids on my heels, um, and I'm having a lot of fun. Um, but unbeknownst to me, at the same time we were having this game, there was a young boy who was climbing a large play structure full of tubes and slides. And he made his way to the top slide, um, and he just really wasn't very tempted by the slides. And instead, he had another idea. It was a little ill-fated. Um, but he climbed over the protective barrier, and just uh, as I was running, he bounded into the air. And his sneakers crashed on my head, mm-hmm. and the two of us just tumbled to the ground, and immediately um, his elbow shattered, and I was paralyzed from the neck down. Oh, what a What a tragedy. Now, at that moment, were you aware of the fact that you were unable to move, and how did you rally uh, someone to come and help? Right away, I knew um, that it was serious and that I couldn't move. Um, I could hear a little girl screaming for the boy to get off of me, and I didn't even know that he was on me. So I was just I was lying on my back. Um, I never lost consciousness. Um, and I think just between the boys' screams that his arm was broken, um, people became aware pretty quickly that something had happened. And so pretty soon a second-grade teacher was at my side. Someone whisked the boy away, right away to the office, and she just knelt down by me. And I think she, too, she said later she could just tell by the way um, I was laying on the wood chips, one flip flop on, one off. Um, she just had, she just knew it was bad. Um, and so eventually I think, you know, she's praying and hoping it's kind of like that moment in a football game where, if, you know, you just kind of wait a few minutes and that stunned person kind of rallies themselves and gets up. But that moment just did not happen. And, and um, I told, I told her, I just said, I, I need an ambulance. And someone held a phone to my ear. My husband was at home at the time working on his uh, dissertation. And so he was up at the school within a few minutes and, you know, found our kids and prayed with them and then was um, taken to the hospital with me. Now, was the prognosis immediate that it's not likely that you're going to walk again or did you have to have a surgery for them to make that determination? So... I think when the MRI results came back, that's when they knew it was really bad. Um, you can, I can still picture the hair doctor's face coming into um, back into the room, and you know, just all hope had drained from his face. And he told us um, that they were looking for a surgeon who was willing and able to perform the operation. He said that there was obvious damage to the spinal cord. And when the surgeon came in, he um, he really didn't mince words. He just said, this is a Christopher Reeve level injury. Um, it is dangerously high. It is um, bad. It's, um, it's just one vertebrate lower than where Christopher Reeve was injured. So um, I was not on the ventilator 
um, at that time I had a ventilator inserted for surgery. Um, I had surgery that evening, and when I came out of surgery, the doctor told my family and friends who were waiting that um, he was hopeful that I would come off the ventilator, and beyond that, hope was really discouraged. Hmm. We're talking this afternoon about uh, Catherine Elizabeth Clark's um, very difficult circumstance in her book, Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue her story in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Catherine Elizabeth Clark. Her book is titled Where I End, and in it she writes, A prayer for favor, adoration, and trust began on the playground wood chips. It was uttered by friends and family in some form or another in the hospital waiting room. This prayer would become the heartbeat of my broken life over the next days, months, year. It's still today indoors. You uh, just hours earlier had been an active mother of two. Uh, You now, due to a tragic accident, uh, have endured surgery, but have been told, your family at least, has been told that it's not likely that you will ever recover your ability to function um, and use, uh, walk again and use your limbs. At that point, as a a believer and having prayed the prayer of, of for recovery, where do you go from there, and, and how did you experience the miracle that surprised everyone? Hmm. That's a good question. So we were very um, fortunate and blessed to be a part of a Christian community. And Grand Rapids, I don't know if you know much about that, but it's this great little Dutch community. Um, we're not from that area, but we instantly had... Um, lots of friends and family who surrounded us. And one of the lovely things I think about being a part of community is that, you know, when maybe you're even in a place where you don't have the hope um, or the faith that the community really can hope um, and even trust in God for and with you. And so we leaned into uh, the truth that we knew that our Heavenly Father could heal and we hoped that he would. Um, It certainly was uh, an interesting and um, challenging parenting moment, especially for my husband. Uh, My daughter, who was four, had asked her daddy if it was okay that I would walk again, and so it was a real moment of, um, do we believe what we say we believe? And he told her, do indeed pray that mom can do that, um, even though the doctor said it wouldn't be possible. And so um, we were um, overjoyed to find that the Lord um, answered affirmatively um, to those prayers. Um, And I don't have, Georgine, one of those uh, pick up your mat and walk moments. That's Mm -hmm. not my story. Um, But what I did have um, was these just little itty-bitty pieces of progress. Uh, started with my left foot. And I could move that foot, and I moved it pretty much constantly because it was this little piece of normal that I gained. And then uh, little by little, we saw improvements. And so for for me, uh, it was a journey of relearning everything um, from you know, crawling, standing, you know, walking, holding a spoon. And it was a, a very long, arduous uh, process. Um, but we um, we had, like I said, a great community that saw us through it. Um, and I also was so very 
very grateful for just the sweet presence of the Lord throughout it. Um, It is a true statement that Jesus Christ is present with us in our suffering, and I I am living testimony of that truth. You write about the fact that you were given a miracle, but that you also still feel pain uh, from your injury. Um, which is a constant reminder of the event that resulted in um, your incapacitation. Describe a little bit of your capacity now and the pain that has been a part of your recovery. Sure. So I do. Everything from the neck down is is technically broken, if you will, although you might not know it just by looking at me. Um, I like to say that I was raised wounded, uh, and the truth is that though I can do a lot of things, there are many things um, that I can't do. I have, um, it's kind of like wearing mittens if you were to put them on your hands and constantly go through life like having gloves on. I don't have great fine motor skills to say the least. Um, I also have um, muscle issues. I have um, spatial issues, like my body doesn't quite understand with my my brain uh, where I am in space, which kind of results in, you know, burns and bruises and things like that. Um, my right side is weaker than my left, which isn't great for things like balance. Um, I'm not able to run. I was a runner. So I just have a lot of, um, and then, the, well, the main thing is that I also have something called um, like a chronic nerve pain. It's kind of like this crazy buzzing, angry bees um, sensation that I have pretty much constantly. Um, and so I take medicine that can curb it, but it's not been able to eliminate it. So I do live very much in that middle place of gratitude and grief. Uh, my family and I know very well what it is like to uh, not be able to do anything. My kids have memories of feeding me and driving my power wheelchair, um, and yet I'm incredibly. Um, and so I, I, you know, I'm incredibly grateful that I'm not there, uh, and I can stand before you and, and say, "This is an amazing thing that the Lord has done." And yet, um, I have a body, and it doesn't work as it was um, created to work. And so I think it's also, you know, I have I live in a grief place as well um, and look forward to a day when that will, will not be. You deal with a lot of suffering in your story, uh, both in the accident and your recovery. What do you think uh, some uh, are some of the things that people get wrong about suffering? We tend to, in our culture to assume that suffering is evidence that somehow um, God has abandoned us or that he's displeased with us? What do we get wrong in our understanding of suffering? Mm, That is true. I think that um, when we are suffering, we often do think that we are somehow outside of the grip or the care of our Heavenly Father. Um, Pain has a way of isolating us, not just from um, from one another. Um, you can be in a room full of people and not know that some of them are in a tremendous amount of pain, be it emotional or physical. Um, and it also makes us feel isolated sometimes from God. And I think that there, you know, there are a few things that I think that we sometimes um, get wrong about suffering. One is that I think that Sometimes we have a hard time as Christians um, letting people grieve. I think we sometimes really want to, you know, skip to the be thankful and God is going to work this out for good and we want to be positive. And those are, I mean, it is a lovely truth that God works all things um, for his, for good. Um, and yet I think we just want to be careful as as Christians that we aren't saying that 
order to, you know, skip or to stunt that grieving process. So mm-hmm. um, we very much, you know, need to grieve. And we have good evidence of that. We've seen Jesus Christ who knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. And yet he weeps. Um, he, and I just love that story, that he stops and he weeps, even though he knows he's going to work something for good. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, but on the flip side of that, I, I also think that sometimes we let grief have a primary place in our lives. And grief never gets to really be the star of our story. Um, so I think it's really important to know that as Christians, we're also called to live with a great deal of grit um, and perseverance, courage of heart. So I think that those are two kind of um, sides of uh, the suffering or traps that we can fall into. Well, the book is beautifully written. You tell your story well, and it challenges all to consider uh, the goodness of God, even in the very difficult circumstances. Again, the book is titled Where I End, The Story of Tragedy, Truth, and Rebellious Hope. Catherine Elizabeth Clark is the author, and it's published by Moody. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be with you. Appreciate it very much. She writes, we belong in the light, but we live in the shadow, the shadow of brokenness, of despair, of sickness and sin. We do not, however, live alone in the shadow. We are joined by the triune God who suffers with us. The enemy whispers, you are alone, you are not seen, nor are you loved. The blood and wounds of Jesus, however, say otherwise. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. First of all, I'd like to thank you for generously responding to the uh, India Partners Radiothon yesterday. I know not all of us can give all the time, but for those of you who are in a position to give and to support the rescue of children in the brothels in India, I just want to say thank you. Uh, we set a goal. We didn't quite reach it. But for those uh, who offered support, it's going to make the difference and uh, a real significant difference in the lives of those children who will uh, benefit by those funds. So thank you very much. It was a difficult day. Of course, yesterday was Valentine's Day, and a lot of people were distracted by expressions of love. And uh, the events that took place in Florida also um, kept our attention wrapped on the unfolding drama of the latest tragedy at a school here in the United States. And while um, my policy here has been generally to mention the name of the uh, perpetrator once or twice for the sake of clarity, uh, what I would prefer to do is draw attention to the victims who were innocent uh, in that they happened to be uh, in the school where this uh, this gunman entered who was uh, had previously been identified and forbidden to enter the school with a backpack in particular, had been a former student, had been expelled <clears throat> last year, but returned to the school. And again, the details are starting to emerge. Well, the names uh, of those 17 people who were gunned down in the shocking school shooting a day earlier Uh, revealed that two of the victims were students who helped children with special needs. One was a football coach who died shielding terrified teens from a hail of bullets in the hallway. He lost his life. He saved theirs. The accuser, the 19-year-old former student, uh, set off a fire alarm to draw students out of their classrooms into the hallway shortly before the end of the school day at uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, one of the largest schools in Broward County. It's a sprawling campus. The suspect was taken into custody without incident about a mile away from the school. He was charged with 17 counts of premeditated murder uh, this afternoon. After he had finished his 
barrage of bullets. He simply dropped his weapon. He removed the backpack he had carried into the school. He ran out with students and teachers trying to escape the, the melee that he himself had created, made his way to Mal- Walmart. He bought himself a beverage, lingered at uh, McDonald's, and then uh, was captured about a mile or two away, just simply walking away, believing that he could not be identified. Fortunately, there were students who were very clear as to his identity, what he was wearing. If he had put a coat on, for example, he may not have been discovered, although having been a former student, it's possible he was identified by name. But I did want to spend a few moments reflecting on the victims. We only know about 13 of them. As I've uh, looked at all of the accounts, there are some who are missing, and I'm not sure what the reason for that is, but one of them was Alyssa Aldehoff. She was a soccer player. She was 15. She was one of the victims in the high school massacre, according to her mother. She was a well-respected member of uh, our club and community. Uh, Parkland Travel Soccer uh, said in a Facebook page, also sharing a comment from her family. To Alyssa's friends, honor Alyssa by doing something fabulous in your life. Don't ever give up and inspire and uh, inspire for greatness. Live for Alyssa. Be her voice and breathe for her. Alyssa loved you all forever. The message read again, Alyssa uh, was 15 years old. Then there was Scott Beigel. He was a geography teacher. He was uh, killed as he protected children from the gunman. One of the students told a local television station. Student Kelsey Friend told Good Morning America her teacher unlocked his door so that he could let students inside his class Uh, to find shelter. I thought he was behind me, but he wasn't. An emotional friend said uh, of Beigel, the teacher, when he opened the door, he had to relock it so we could stay safe, but he didn't get a chance to. Uh, I'm so thankful that he was there to help everybody who did live in that classroom because he was in the doorway and the door was still open and the shooter probably didn't know we were still there because Mr. Uh, Beigel was lying on the floor. One friend continued, as a teacher, he made it easier to comprehend the subjects he taught his students. His Facebook account turned into a memorial page uh, Thursday afternoon. He also volunteered at the Camp Starlight, which is a recreational program in Pennsylvania. Another of the victims was um, Martin Dirk. According to a criminal complaint filed Thursday, Martin Dirk was a victim of the uh, of the shooting. Martin's brother, Miguel, posted a photo collage to Instagram saying words cannot describe my pain. Nicholas Dwart was also a victim. He was a high school senior, recently earned himself a scholarship to join the University of Indianapolis swim team in the fall, according to the Indianapolis Star. He was one of several students killed in the shooting. I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart, he just took his life in his hands and he chiseled and molded his life. That's uh, what a coach said about his former uh, charge. Uh, Bailey added, the coach, that Dwart uh, was affectionately nicknamed Swim Daddy because he would help his teammates practice. Aaron Feiss, um, an assistant football coach and security guard at the, uh, at the school, shielded students from gunfire with his own body. He lost his life. He saved theirs. An assistant football coach, security guard, uh, he um, shielded those students he cared about. At the school, at least one female student recalled him pushing her through a doorway and away from the spray of bullets. Football coach Willis May told the Sun Sentinel, uh, it is great with great sadness that our football family has learned about the death of Aaron Feist. He was our assistant football coach and security guard. He selflessly shielded students from the shooter when he was uh, shot. He died a hero and he will forever be in our hearts and memories. Uh, when the initial calls about the shooting came through the school's uh, walkie talkie, he responded to uh, his duty 
duties as a security guard, according to the newspaper. Um, he described, uh, one of his colleagues described Mr. Feist as a big uh, teddy bear and someone who had loyalty, loyalty rather, and pride with his football team. Can everyone please take a second to pray for my coach today? He took several bullets covering other students at Douglas said one Twitter account. Then there was Jamie Gutenberg. She was a student. She died in the shooting. Her father confirmed on Facebook. Fred Gutenberg said uh, his son Jesse was safe, but his daughter had died. I am broken as I write this, trying to figure out how my family gets through this, he said. Jamie volunteered with the Friendship Initiative. It's an organization that brings kids with special needs together with their peers, who are all student volunteers, according to the founder of the program. She held a tremendous compassion for students, she was uh, mature and compassionate beyond her years and was always very eager to share herself with people who were less fortunate than she. Then there's Chris Hickson, uh, Majority Stoneman Douglas um, uh, Athletic Director. Chris Hickson was, or rather Marjorie, uh, was among those fatally shot, according to the Sun Sentinel. He was 49. He was deployed to Iraq as a National Guard reservist in 2007, according to the newspaper. Rest in peace. Chris Hickson, I left Douglas to take a job at a rival school. I came back to watch a lacrosse game to find Chris running the ticket gate, wrote one of his friends on Twitter. He shook my hand, asked how I was, let me in for free and said, once an eagle, always an eagle. Chris is probably the nicest guy I had ever met. He would give you the shirt off his back. He does so much. Coral Springs High School Athletic Director Dan Jacobs wrote, Hickson leaves behind a wife and two children. Then there's Luke Hoyer. He was 14, a high school student. He was killed in the shooting. His grandparents told the local news. He was a good kid. He never got in trouble. Uh, Janice Stroud uh, told WYFF-TV, he was the last of my daughter's children who still lived at home. Only 14 years old, Gina Montalto uh, was a freshman on Douglas High's Winter Guard team. My heart is broken into pieces. I will forever remember you, my sweet angel, Manuel Miranda, one of her former color guard instructors, told the Miami Herald. She was the sweetest soul ever. She was kind, caring, always smiling, and wanting to help. Um, Joaquim Oliver, known by his uh, friends as Guac, uh, uh, short for guacamole, was killed in the massacre as well. My friend will literally never get to say I graduated high school, his friend Oliver said. It was uh, it has been almost seven hours and Joaquin Oliver still hasn't been found. Please, if you see or hear anything, contact me or anyone, you know, to deliver the message. Oliver was born in Venezuela, moved to the United States when he was a toddler, became a citizen in January of last year. Then there's Elena Petty. Elena was 14. She was one of the victims in the school shooting. Her great aunt um, confirmed in her Facebook post, there are no hashtags for moments like this, only sadness, she wrote, asking people to lift up Petty's family in prayer. Stephen E. Thompson, a local uh, church uh, leader, said that she was a member of the church and faithful. Then there's Alex Shackner. According to the criminal complaint filed Thursday, he was a victim of the shooting. He was 14. And Peter Wang was um, last seen holding the door open so that others could escape. His cousin Aaron told the Miami Herald Wang was 15, was reportedly part of the school's ROTC program. He wasn't supposed to die, Chen told First Coast News. He did, but he died a hero attempting to help others. And these are they who died yesterday in that tragic event. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Craig Bannister points out that as we're reflecting on what happened in Florida and what's happened far too often just since the first of the year, the problem with mass violence in the United States is more a reflection of contempt for the sanctity of human life than of a love of gun ownership. It is a, it is a society, or rather in a society, that uh, reverse, uh, reveres human life. Gun ownership isn't a chronic problem. People who genuinely believe in the sanctity of human life won't take another life by gun or any other means unless it is absolutely necessary. Not so in a society that views human life as subjective and revocable. In a society that condemns, funds, and uh, rather condones, funds, and promotes abortion and excuses euthanasia, human life is cheap. When a woman has a right to kill an unwanted child growing inside simply because um, it suits her Uh, life is robbed of its value. In a society that believes that a woman has the power to change the child growing inside her uh, into an inanimate blob of tissue simply by decreeing that it's so, human life is something that can be dismissed by mere whim. And it's a life if I want it to be, and it's a life if I don't, Um, mentality presumes that people have the right and power to play God with human life. Likewise, if a husband has the right and power to prevent a hospital from continuing to feed his wife, thus starving her to death, um, uh, as in uh, Terry Schiavo, the message is clear. Life can be extinguished by a decree and desire. Then there's a pervasive, gratuitous violence on today's entertainment and video games, uh, desensitizing American children and adults to the wanton wholesale destruction of human life. People who believe human life is sacred do not extinguish it capriciously. They do everything in their power to preserve and to protect it. People who do not believe human life is sacred can be more prone to base uh, life and death decisions upon emotion, convenience, and hubris. Thus, when it comes to preventing mass violence, the answer is respect for life and self-control, not gun control. Well, it may require some addressing of guns as well, but I think his major point that uh, the contempt for human life runs prevalent through our uh, society is one worth considering. Well, in other news today, um, there were multiple attempts in the Senate to pass immigration legislation, but the plans were blocked in the Senate after the president president called one of the proposals a total catastrophe. Well, senators today blocked all four plans dealing with immigration as the president torpedoed one of them as uh, the catastrophe and his Department of Homeland Security lambasted it as the end of immigration enforcement in America. Well, during a series of afternoon procedural votes, no immigration amendments crossed the 60 vote threshold that would have to uh, uh, would be necessary rather to cut off debate and to pave the way. For final votes, the effort to pass immigration legislation comes as Democrats insist on protecting young illegal immigrants brought to the country as children and Trump demands funding for the border wall in exchange. Ahead of the votes, the Trump administration focused on the bipartisan agreement that was drawn up by the Gang of 22. Apparently the gang is growing that would grant 10 to 12 year path to young illegal immigrants or deferred action for childhood arrivals, DACA recipients. Well, that amendment failed by only getting 54 votes. 45 senators voted against it. Well, the administration objected to the bill's failure to address so-called chain migration by which immigrants can sponsor a broad number of relatives to come join them in the U.S. The president has said that he wants to limit sponsorship to children and spouses or immediate families. The bill also would not end the visa lottery system, which allows 55,000 immigrants into the country every year and has been dogged by accusations of fraud and abuse. Senator Chuck Schumer 
He accused the president of the, on the Senate floor of trying to spike the deal. Why, he said, because it isn't 100 percent of what the president wants on immigration. That's not how our democracy works, which is, of course, a constitutional republic and not a democracy. You don't get 100 percent of what you want in a democracy, he went on to say, maybe in a dictatorship. Well, Senator Lindsey Graham, of course, he only expressed his dislike. He didn't impose his power over it. So that's a bit of a stretch. Senator Lindsey Graham, who supported the amendment, said our proposal would represent the most significant change to immigration law in the past 35 years. That Senator Tim Kaine called it the best chance to protect dreamers against deportation from the only um, country they know as home. In two tweets, the president um, said the Schumer rounds columns. Uh, Collins' immigration bill would be a total catastrophe. It creates a giant amnesty, including for dangerous criminals, doesn't build the wall, expands chain migration, keeps the visa lottery, continues deadly catch and release, and bars enforcement even for future illegal immigrants. Voting for the amendment would be a vote against law enforcement and a vote for open borders. Well, the Schumer-Rounds-Collins immigration bill would be a total catastrophe, he went on to say. If Dems are actually serious about DACA, they should support the Grassley bill. Well, that proposal, authored by Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, was also rejected by the U.S. Senate. Senators also blocked a plan by Senator John McCain and Senator Chris Coons, a Republican and a Democrat, respectively, which would allow DACA recipients to qualify for permanent residency while directing agencies to control the borders by 2020. And another plan offered by Senator Pat Toomey that would block federal grants to sanctuary cities that do not cooperate with the federal authorities on illegal immigration also failed to pass a test vote. So the day was essentially a failure. However, there was actual debate on something, and I suppose that's a step in the right direction. Meanwhile, the Oregon House voted along party lines on Tuesday to ask voters in November to embed a universal right to health care in the state constitution. Now, this went on amid questions over the cost of ensuring such a right. Buoyed by voters' approval of the health care taxes in the January special election and controversy around congressional Republican attempts to undo the Affordable Care Act, Oregon Democrats are looking at health care as a key election issue this year. Well, House Democrats passed the resolution referring the question to voters without a single Republican vote. It heads next to the Senate. At the same time, a group that often agrees with progressive policies championed by Democrats is sounding the alarm about the potential impact. In a letter dated February 5th to the House Health Care Committee, the nonpartisan League of Women Voters of Oregon wrote that the group supports access to basic health care for all people at the national level Uh, Pinning it to the state level instead would be a mistake, the group said. Well, the league's president, Norman Turrell, and social policy coordinator Karen Nibbler pointed out that without federal funding for universal health care, Oregon would be on the hook to cover the entire cost. Oregon can barely afford uh, much of what it's already committed to paying. Well, the league cannot support an amendment for health care as a right because there is an implied state responsibility to provide the health care for all residents, Terrell and Nibbler wrote. The state of Oregon has insufficient income to support its current responsibilities and cannot provide the added cost of health care coverage for all its residents at this time. Well, both uh, Representative uh, Mitch Greenlick, uh, Portland Democrat and chief sponsor of the resolution, and Republican Representative Julie Parrish of West Lynn, who voted against it, asked legislative lawyers to weigh in on whether the proposed constitutional amendment would force the state to pick up the bill to ensure everyone did, in fact, have health care. In letters to Greenlick and Parrish, Chief Legislative Counsel Dexter Johnson wrote that the constitutional amendment would only require the state to provide access to cost-effective, medically appropriate and affordable health care. 
but the state wouldn't have to provide actual health care. Some of the legislature's uh, options to fulfill such a mandate could carry a minimal cost, Johnson wrote, while others would have enormous financial consequences for the state, end quote. Well, there is always a possibility that the state could be sued for failing to follow a constitutional mandate, but we cannot say whether such a suit would be successful, and if so, what the maximum extent of the state's liability would be, Johnson wrote to the lawmakers. Hmm. Well, former uh, Oregon Governor John Kitzhaber's decision to place his fiancée, Sylvia Hayes, in a powerful state policy role while she continued to do paid advocacy work set off a cascade of ethics violations, according to a new report from the state's ethics watchdog. Well, in the report released yesterday, staffers for the Oregon Government Ethics uh, Commission listed 11 instances in which the governor likely violated state laws that bar public officials from accepting gifts, using their position for personal gain, and failing to publicly disclose and avoid conflicts of interest. The former governor actively helped Hayes gain clout and lucrative work as a consultant by speaking at her events, granting her access to top-level government gatherings, and insisting she be allowed to influence state policies they found. Well, last month, the uh, commission concluded that Hayes broke the same state ethics laws on 22 occasions. Private groups paid the former first lady more than $200,000 to promote green energy and economic policies. They have yet to decide how to penalize her, but could fine her by as much as $110,000. The commission is scheduled to meet um, Friday to consider the ethics staff findings about a former governor's action. If the commission agrees with the investigators' findings, it could uh, fine him, the governor, the former governor, $55,000. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 31 minutes after 5. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Star Spangled Banner will no longer be played at rallies at California High School in San Ramon, where after student leaders determined the song is um, racially insensitive. It was brought to our attention that the national anthem's third verse is outdated and racially offensive. Of course, no one sings the third verse, but that's what the president of the school's associated student body wrote. We had nothing but good intentions by removing the song so that we could be fully inclusive to our student body. Well, the decision to eliminate the national anthem from student rallies has resulted in a significant amount of backlash from patriotic students and residents. There's been a lot of pushback on the removal of the anthem and not just from conservatives. Senior Dennis uh, Fiormento uh, said at the on the Todd Starnes radio program, He's, uh, he was a guest uh, uh, and said uh, he was shocked when he realized the national anthem had been banned. It's important that we honor and respect those who sacrifice their lives protecting the freedom that us Americans take for granted every day, he said. On a side note, kudos to the student journalists at the California High School who first reported this story and did it so with a fair and balanced report. It's refreshing to see solid journalism from the Californian. Well, the student body president uh, posted a letter on the high school's website defending the decision to ban the song by citing a third verse that references the hireling and the slave. Now, this verse translated finds uh, joy in the killing of African-Americans, the student government president uh, writes, to think that our nation's anthem once had the word slave and land of the free in the same sentence leaves me speechless. I have chosen not to identify the student government leader because the student is underage. Moving forward, we must take action and be inclusive to all the students. Student body president wrote, this song was written in 1814. That was written uh, 204 years ago. Imagine all the traditions and laws that have changed. The U.S. Constitution is 228 years old. The student leaders at California High suggest we simply toss that document in the trash bin of history. 
As for uh, culture, there are shifts to one that uh, is more diverse and accepting of all types of people, the student government leader wrote. Uh, So must our traditions. And although we understand that this anthem represents pride and patriotism in our country to many people, we believe that there are other uh, other ways that this can be accomplished without an expense to the inclusivity rather on our campus. Well, in Canada, you might recall, they just recently changed for the second or third time lyrics in their anthem that made reference to men or mankind. And now it's more inclusive to include uh, both men and women. Um, So in this case, uh, they've decided because a verse that no one is uh, aware of, that no one sings and doesn't really consider part of the anthem, but is part of the song. Uh, is offensive. It should not be sung. And in that school, it will not be. We'll see what happens moving forward as others are opposed to various expressions of our nation's history that are um, unwelcome by some of us. Well, your driver's license could be replaced by a cell phone app if a pilot program involving four states in the District of Columbia works out. Now, I don't want my driver's license to be on my phone for a variety of reasons. But uh, according to the uh, Paul Grassi, who's with the Commerce Department's National Institute of Standards and Technology, we see great utility in the future with mobile driver's licenses that don't exist today with a physical plastic card. With innovation occurring on mobile pro- platforms, it's almost, uh, it almost makes too much sense to add this to, as an option. Now, if it's an option, that's one thing. It's uh, exclusive, another. Well, NIST provided a $2 million grant by, uh, uh, to a cybersecurity company called Gamalto to design and test a digital license in the two-year pilot program. The purpose of that pilot is uh, really to test the technology before we went to, to a full-scale implementation, according to the field marketing director of that company here in North America. The company's already conducted field trials in Colorado and Idaho, Wyoming, and um, Maryland and Washington, D.C., and they're looking to expand to California. It's not just an image of a license on your phone, Conway said. It's really a new way of carrying and storing your credential that allows you to interact with verifying parties in a completely different way. Now, if your battery is dead, if you left your phone at home, I suppose there could be complications. Um, But she goes on to say the cell phone app does show your license front and back. Um, just as it looks on your plastic version. But unlike the license in your wallet, the app also has settings that allow you to limit what's shown depending on the situation. For example, when buying alcohol, you only see their picture and it says um, that uh, you are of age, um, uh, which is different from the physical card. I don't know what the reverse side would make uh, what difference that would make, but nothing else on your ID is seen by the store clerk. You are just checking the face recognition with the computer and they're off and running, uh, says Greg, um, uh, adding that the simplicity and speed would really help stores like hers that have thousands of transactions in a single day. Well, on the other hand, if you uh, are pulled over while driving, the entire license will be available to the officer. But what about those of us who are frightened by the ideas of giving police access to information on our phones or the fact that phones are uh, no longer permitted, uh, for example, in Oregon, where they are visible and can be used because that's against the law? So there could be some snafu associated with this whole thing. But according to Conway, that's a fantastic point and something that we're really um, uh, heard from uh, from the get-go, there's uh, no one wants to uh, 
to hand their cell phone over to anyone for any purpose. Well, the solution was to develop an app you can access separately from the other information in your phone, protected, of course, by the pin or fingerprint. Uh, Conway went on to say it works a bit like a digital ticket to a movie or concert. You open the app and hold your phone close to a device uh, that scans and reads that information, but nothing else, we presume. Whether you're at the airport, whether you're being pulled over by law enforcement, your phone never leaves your hand, although um, one might wonder if more information than the information that's being scanned could be accessed. Not everyone is thrilled with the idea, including criminal defense attorney and self-described civil libertarian Dan Rasht. Um, what, what comes to my mind is the possibility of frightening privacy invasion by the government. He believes people have uh, gotten much too used to having all their personal information stored electronically. And while he says there's nothing inherently wrong with a digital driver's license, he said it leaves room for abuse. Um, what happens in a power outage? Or as I mentioned, your phone has not been charged. What keeps the government from overreaching, he uh, asks. Uh, what keeps them from going the next step? And it really is uh, only another step or two to the national ID where they know everything about you. Well, one of the very first tenets of no national ID uh, is uh, not allowing this kind of uh, easy access, and the mobile driver's license would be no different. Each individual state will still have uh, be in control of driver's license information as they are now, uh, says the supporters. Diane Johansson, manager of the driver's license office in Lakewood, Colorado, which took part in the testing of this product, says everyone wants to wants it right now, and I think the digital license is the wave of the future, personally and professionally. What questions might arise uh, in the future once it's in place in at least some areas remains to be seen. It would be basically uh, it would rather basically keep um, uh, keep people out of the office. And for those people with special needs, there are uh, nursing homes that have an issue of just getting a driver's license and going to the office. It's very simple. There's still a year to go on the pilot during the uh, uh, this whole process. They're going to focus on how to use the digital ID for things like setting up accounts uh, online instead of manually typing in the information. And then we'll take all the results that uh, we found, says the uh, pilot uh, organization overseeing the whole thing, and we'll take the new refined technology, present it to the states, and it uh, uh, it will really be up to them to determine when or if they'd like to implement this in full-scale fashion. They believe most Americans will have the choice of using a digital driver's license or sticking to the old hard copy within the next five years. So we'll see if the choice uh, remains the case, but that uh, that's a, a pretty big question. We're going to take a break here in uh, just a moment. Um, about 45 minutes after 5 o'clock is the time, and we'll wrap things up. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, they tell us that Monday might result in snow in the Portland area. It will come on uh, on Sunday night, it's uh, it's been unusually warm for us this winter, and sometimes I have to remind myself that we're in the midst of winter, but there's a chance that Portland's going to see a sprinkling of white stuff come Sunday evening. Well, that forecast uh, for that day calls for a low of 28 degrees, and with the National Weather Service saying showers are likely during the day, and that there's a chance of snow showers overnight, it might be uh, a white President's Day in the Valley. Um, we're not entirely sure that's the case. We're not sure that there will be precipitation, and that's the deciding factor in this case. Whether or not there's precipitation, we do know the temperatures will drop. Of course, some smartphone weather apps 
Uh, They show a shining yellow sun accompanying a high of about 40 degrees and a low of 24 for Monday. So we'll just have to wait and see. Apparently, um, uh, a lot of these apps load a model and it's not actually updated by humans. So anyway, we'll have to find out what actually happens. If there's a snow on Sunday evening or early Monday, President's Day would be the second holiday in Portland to uh, witness a bit of snowfall this month alone. Early on Wednesday, some folks in the hills, uh, they were treated with a light dusting of snow, which is gone Uh, was gone there by afternoon. Probably if we have snow in Portland, it'll be something similar. According to the uh, National Weather Service, below freezing temperatures should dominate Monday and Tuesday evenings. And at least on uh, iPhone Thursday, still a long ways to go. There's a snow icon next to a high of 44 and a low of 34. Um, But we'll find out what, um, what their weather will actually be. I want to let you know that there is a prayer and fasting vigil that uh, you are encouraged to participate in to pray for Luis Palau. That's coming up the 18th through the 24th, and it's uh, being sponsored by Sunrise Church. I received an email earlier today from a Bethany Olson. She said she'd been trying to communicate with the Portland and greater Portland area churches about this uh, this week's prayer and fasting event for Luis Palau. She's been calling churches, uh, has uh, reached about 40 of them. Um, she was reminded that uh, here on the radio station, of course, we have access to lots of people from varying churches, and so I told her I would make sure to uh, mention that on the air. There's a Again, a time of prayer and fasting, February the 18th through the 24th. You don't have to come together to do that, but they're asking that you would set aside time specifically to pray for Luis Palau. Um, There's an all-church prayer event on the 21st, which is Wednesday, and that will be from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. at Sunrise Church. Pastor Keith Doherty is the point pastor for that event. Uh, It's going to be on the Northeast Campus in Hillsboro, and you can contact them for more information, or you can just come to the church again on Wednesday. Wednesday, February 21st, from 6 to 8 p.m. at sunrise. There's going to be a prayer vigil for those who uh, would like to lift up in corporate uh, worship and prayer, uh, Luis Palau, who was diagnosed recently with uh, fourth-stage lung cancer. Well, this has been a very difficult day following a tragedy on Wednesday in Florida in which 17 individuals lost their lives. Uh, Most of them were high school students. We did learn earlier today that Uh, of those who were um, hospitalized and injured following the events on Wednesday, uh, that none of them are now listed as critical. And that's an update from what we had earlier today. So we have one who's still in the hospital uh, being treated, but others have been upgraded uh, and no one is in critical condition. So that's a bright uh, light in an otherwise very tragic and difficult set of events. We talked earlier in the program with Paul and Khadija Jacobs, their daughter, Zafina. She was on site at the school in Florida, and uh, she was uh, she and her mother were interviewed by CNN explaining and expressing uh, her uh, recollection of the events that happened there. But for those of us who are uh, followers of Christ, we are reminded that in the midst of this kind of tragedy, we have access to the throne of grace. We can pray for those whose lives have been impacted directly, those who have survived loved ones who were killed in this shooting. I think about the extended family of the shooter himself. He lost both his mother and father, um, his mother as recently as November the 1st. We don't know what's going on in this young man's life, but I would pray for redemption, even for uh, for him and that uh, throughout this whole process of investigation and ultimately he will be charged with murder and they're saying the death penalty is uh, certainly on the table that he would come to a realization of of the severity of what he's done 
and that um, the facts of the case, his motivation and so on, would be made clear. Uh, In all of that, I just wanted to close today's program with an opportunity for us to reflect on all of this in a broader perspective and encourage you to remember to and continue, I should say, to pray for those impacted by those events and those of us grieving at some distance. Um, These things are never expected. They're always overwhelming. And so we wanted to leave you with something that might be a bit encouraging. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.